0: Joshua Hansen is the creator of Academiology, which seeks to unconceal the inner logic of academia and its effects on our world. You can find more from Joshua at Academiology.net, on Twitter at Academiology, and on YouTube. How are we doing, Joshua?
1: Hey, I'm doing great. Uh, Thanks very much for having me on. Uh, Appreciate it.
0: Yeah, no, thanks for your time. This is a big subject in philosophy. There's probably, you know... A million million books on you know what is education all that sorts of things there's a lot of um political opinions on the universities and you know um and how they're kind of uh, hotbeds of you know neo neo marxism and all this sort of stuff so it's good that someone's taking a bit more of a um a different approach to what's been done before so in, in your own words, could you tell me kind of the meaning
1: of this this term, Academiology? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I've kind of been reading in the area of philosophy of education for about six years. And in that time frame, I was trying to understand what the heck is going on in the contemporary university system, particularly in the West, particularly in the U.S., but also uh, you know, elsewhere uh, and in the U.K. And um, basically, I was only able to kind of get snippets of the overall picture from here, uh, you know, here and there. So I decided to kind of Put together my own uh, doctrine, which, you know, uh, it definitely was named uh, with tongue in cheek. But nevertheless, uh, kind of what I'm aiming to do is bring together the sociology of higher education with the history of ideas. With the meta narrative of the Western intellectual, also with critical university studies and critical theory to try to do a philosophical anthropology and analysis of the university, the figure of the academic, uh, you know, kind of as it is unfolded in history. And this whole thing, kind of the the first move to this would be, uh, you know, suspending uh, belief in the sort of absolute authority of the academic judgment, kind of in a spirit of openness and kind of the, you know, the aim here is to kind of, is to create a clearing for thinking, which is something that at the present moment, I think can only be achieved through destructuring at least ideologically, philosophically, the contemporary university system. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So that's essentially when you're talking about unconcealing this inner logic of the academy. Um, One possibly quite pedantic question, but you go on to say, uh, and then analyze the effects on our world. A kind of pedantic question is, when you say are, is it, does this apply to all people? Is it just intellectuals or, you know, perhaps it's just, you know, those who are duped by the academy or something like this? Like, who does that apply to? Who does, who is academiology useful for?
1: Yeah, that, uh, that is a very interesting question. Uh, that leads me into kind of a, an insight that I would want to bring out right off the bat, which is that I think that reality is uh, one of the great, uh, largest counterfactuals to academic self-understanding uh, presently going. And this would be like, you know, if you look at Ivan Illich and like Deschooling Society, he makes this point. Point, right off the bat, you know, this is from the 70s, I still think it's valid today. Uh, you know, the idea that somebody uh, is going to a university and paying basically an amount of money that constitutes something like more than the life income of half of the world's population or something like this, in order to solve exactly that problem. So um, kind of this is a system that is very much embedded in, you know, uh purportedly trying to solve many of the issues that it is caused in the first instance. And, um, you know, so who is it for? Um, I just wanted to kind of get that out there right off the bat as far as who it's for. Obviously, uh, these sorts of subject matters. I think it's going to be mostly people that are familiar with philosophy. Maybe as I gain an understanding and kind of move forward down the road, uh, you know, I can start to try to, um, you know, try to articulate this stuff in a way that is, uh, you know, more uh, understanding friendly. But you know, if you're talking about Deleuze and you know Pierre Bourdieu. Uh, That is an issue there. And there's actually a critique of this idea um, by Jacques Ranciere. This is the idea that, uh, you know, there's people excluded from these structures of power, such as the university. These people, in many cases, they don't even know why they're excluded, but now you have the issue of the only person who may know this, this is sort of his critique was, it's the idea that the academic sociologist is the one who now knows this. Now, because I am somebody who, you know, I'm not in a PhD program, I've never even applied, I'm not in a university, you know, I've never actually done a proper academic role, I think I kind of uh, elude that particular criticism but uh yeah i'm you know obviously this is still in motion so i'm not sh- quite sure what the end game is yeah
0: yeah and that's something i really appreciate about your project which sets it apart from like i said the traditional analysis of education um the academy and you know all the all the political stuff we're hearing today and i i guess that's kind of the the critical distance you wanted to keep um i i just I'm just wondering, kind of from your perspective, I'm just wondering what ideologies you think um, kind of are critiquing the academy, and in what ways do you think they fail? I mentioned, you know, the you know the quite um, the repeated uh, Petersonian line of the bloody neo marxists in the university, but I don't know if you think there's any other kind of interesting ideological, you know, critiques we should be aware of.
1: I definitely do not think that it is uh, really, I don't think that there's much to do with Marxism at all. Um, You know, it's like, if you look, maybe let's say in the early 2000s, there was like six standard critiques. From both sides of the ideological spectrum that you would say from the left, uh, you might see discussion of uh, you know, like uh corporatization, which is absolutely a problem, the commercialization of higher ed. Uh, you might hear discussion of the uh, well, I guess seven. Uh you might hear discussion of the fall of the faculty, uh, you know, to the sort of admin um being elevated, these sort of zombie bureaucrats, and then um. Also, you would hear just kind of, you know, standard critique of neoliberalism, while at the same time, you know, the figures on the right have tended to focus on multiculturalism, moral relativism, and um, something that's uh, escaping me right now. But, you know, you kind of hear these culture war cliches over and over again. Maybe I'll think of that last one. Nevertheless, uh, I'm pretty sure that all of these are very much actually connected. Um, you know, under the same sort of globalizing uh, you know, neoliberal state ideology powered by techno-capitalism. And, you know, that's basically what it is. The corporations have certainly exerted tremendous power, um, you know, over these um, institutions, Um, whether we're talking about the student loan sharks or we're talking about like biotech, uh, getting involved in such things as, uh, you know, uh, which way research is headed. To uh, you know, basically tenure decisions and things of this nature, the licensing of intellectual property, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, the, what I find interesting is that the only coherent argument that I've that I have seen out of like you know I've looked at a lot of uh, texts on education from you know from the ridiculous to the very good, and the only coherent account of the contemporary academy that I've seen uh, was called the perfect mess by a gent at Stanford. And he's trying to basically argue that the university system is a powerful economic engine. And that itself is something that I think is kind of a problem, you know, this uh, economic optimism, uh, corporate thinking, and so forth, uh, and, you know, an emphasis on vocational training. Uh, instrumental reason and so forth. This is basically the opposite of what education would actually entail. Um, And, you know, that is very contrary to, you know, this is something education's had many meanings and the university has had a number of justifications, um, you know, over the historical epochs, whether we're talking about an emphasis on virtue, piety, uh, you know, culture, Excellence. Uh, you know, we've seen these transitions, but we're finally at the point where you know it is fully hypermodern in the sense that there's no coherent justification for the university as it stands um, at all, really, other than as uh you know an alternative use, which is that it served some useful purpose, um, you know. Uh, th- which is, you know, obviously, uh, this has to do with, um, th- you know, the commercial world. So the hard nosed world, the practical business, rather than, uh, you know, something like moral self-cultivation and so forth.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I feel like um, your kind of acknowledgement of capital and how it kind of absorbs everything is really, is really useful here, as opposed to you know, the, what is education, you know, epistemological sort of arguments or, you know, the more ideological stuff, uh, I really, I really like your language around using, um, calling these places like vocational training centers. Cause it does, it does feel like that. And I think it's really interesting to contrast this place we've ended up with these being, you know, training centers for bu- bureaucrats um, against something like you said, came out of the left, um, which is, you know, critical studies essentially. Um, You know, which was an attempt to escape this neoliberal capture, and it completely, completely failed. They've become these these critical studies departments and um, you know disciplines um, have become you know just as bad as the you know ivory towers they wanted wanted to replace. You know, as as much as they waffle on about critiquing structures of power, as more and more people seem to exit these institutions. And, you know, the, the the social and, you know, like the uh, social and economic currency of these institutions becomes debased. They increasingly seem to goose step with the institution as opposed to critiquing it at all.
1: Absolutely. I 100% agree with that. And kind of uh, the way I see that is that... Uh, I think a lot of what goes on is, um, you know, the stuff that gets selected and, you know, promoted, advanced and so on and so forth is actually stuff that uh, truly advances the technical system rather than critiquing it. Uh, So that's kind of mostly what you see. Um, I have this idea or so you have you ever heard of this thing, uh, consilience uh, by like E.O. Wilson, uh, where he was basically what he was talking about is uh, this sort of you have the discussion of the two cultures uh, going back to uh, C.P. Snow so he's talking about the two cultures, the humanities and the sciences. Uh, so now kind of E.O. Wilson was weighing in on this um, several years ago. And what he's trying to say is that ah, they need to be brought into harmony, the humanities and the sciences. Now we really have, I would say, three cultures because you have the social science sciences as well, whatever you want to call those Um And really what it ends up being is that, uh, you know, technics, technical science is really dominating the academy in terms of funding and so on and so forth. And so I think there's actually what we're seeing is inconsilience in the sense that, uh, you know, to to the extent that the humanities um, kind of support that overall uh, mission, uh, you know, that's the vector that they're headed in. And so you get that with the post-humanities, the digital post-humanities and so on and so forth uh you know um that's kind of that's where i kind of see that vector going so it's really uh, total domination uh by technical science and i think it's moving towards what habermas uh called a rationally totalitarian society so this would activate all the critiques by people uh you know going from you know rousseau to horkheimer and adorno in the dialectic of enlightenment, and. Uh, uh, you know, I, I think that that is uh, becoming even more relevant today uh, than when it was written, perhaps. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I, f- I feel like the I think I think you mentioned uh, excellence, which I think I don't know if this is true or not. But is that is that from uh, Bill Reddings?
1: Yeah, it is. I th- like, I think the main argument of the book, um, to, you know, the uh, the University in Ruins is uh discussing how the german idealists uh were kind of uh into uh cult like you know culture and self cultivation that's kind of like the humboldtian ideal and we shifted from the idea of natural or national culture uh consistent with sort of uh you know the globalizing project towards this notion of corporate excellence which is kind of like a vacuous uh very vacuous sort of thing. There's also something uh, highly unusual is that you'll see theorists or philosophers of education uh, start making arguments where um, we went from culture. See, I think we're beyond excellence now. We've gone from culture to excellence to now we're at uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And really the purpose of that is to deal with the fallout of the excellence. You know, that's how these things kind of come into being, Um, you know, the excellence was because we were moving away from culture and you could probably play this game all the way back. But um, so what I'm driving at there is the idea that now there are, uh, you know, kind of theorists out there saying we need to get back to this hollow corporate ethos of excellence, uh, you know, which was basically, uh, you know, in some ways, uh, somewhat meaningless. Uh, You know, it's just it's become it's become a business buzzword, uh, you know, that I guess is used in faculty meetings and in these documents and so on and so forth.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think uh, maybe you're just with here, but I feel like we're really kind of building a bit of a genealogy here as well, because the, the dominance of the technical subjects probably served a utility when sciences were becoming, you know, actually useful for the, um, you know, the Imperial powers, this sort of thing. Right. And then all of a sudden, you know, The humanities kind of have to roll over and accept that they're now second place, second place to the technical subjects. And then you end up in a a world where, um, you know, and this is still present today, where, you know, someone who's, you know, a humanities subject person will see, you know, some sort of, you know, paper that might be peer reviewed, but will have, you know, something complex in it, like numbers or uh, charts or a graph. And, you know, it's either like, you know, the pretending to understand what I'm reading or it's the, oh, I don't know any of this. And then it's kind of, okay, i leave that to the scientists as we say, right? But it's interesting how, you know, you know, our empirical data can be true and useful, but because we now, you know, have these, um, you know, this, this excellence, which I think is such a great thing that Bill Redding's brought up, which it, it, it kind of implies a system of social reputation metrics of optimization you know like the number of papers you're publishing I think there's I, I'm trying to think of this specific case but there's this um there's this you know professor who has like publishes like five papers a week or something like that but they're all like you know he's co-authoring them and they're rehashes of previous papers all sort of thing I, um, I'm really struggling to remember the name um and that all comes into like productivity reporting where you know oh, this guy's publishing five papers a week, he must be the best scientist in the world, right? Um, But then we come now to the place where, you know, peer review is not working anymore, if it ever did. And it is essentially being rigged. And there are, you know, there's there's people all organized socially in, you know, to cite each other, essentially. So I'm not sure where that really leaves us.
1: Yeah, so all that stuff is being gamified. And, you know, it seems like that's what tends to happen when people try to, like, quantify, uh, you know, let's say you have something that is, um, you know, that kind of developed um, rhizomatically, and now somebody comes in and they want to quantify this whole thing. Uh, It really, you know, this sort of metric fixation, uh, this one gent calls it, um, is something that really, it definitely kills joy, for one thing. Um, But so now... I think that that's one of the biggest drawbacks of like Taylorism, scientific management, and so so on and so forth. You know, it depends on uh, trying to, on just pure computation. And what it does is it misses the complexities of human life, human psychology, human interaction, and so on and so forth. And that's why it always tends to fail uh, at least in my view. And in the meantime, that seems to be kind of like the dominant, ethos consensus coming out of the university system. If you're looking at like Steven Pinker, uh, you know, he's, he's calling for enlightenment when everything that we see is basically a product of the enlightenment, I would say. Um, So he's calling for enlightenment. And then you have like somebody like Benjamin Bratton is calling for planetary scale computation, Or, um, who else do you have in here? There's at least one other character, um, you know, to, to round this whole thing out, uh, you know, where they're just headed towards this sort of techno bureaucratic, uh, you know, sort of system. Uh, I really think that, um, because of the state of, you know, how power operates, the institutionalization of violence and techniques that we're moving out of sort of uh, a period that would be characterized as, uh, you know, like the end of history, liberal democracy towards basically uh, open tyranny. That is how I would that's the direction I think that we're headed. And a big part of that is going to have to do absolutely with, you know, these metrics, these sorts of performance measures, six Sigma, six Sigma Agile and all this uh, stuff from these management gurus who in one text out there calls these people witch doctors, which I thought is somewhat amusing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> they've got their own uh, language, you know,
0: Sigma Sigma Agile, all this sort of thing sounds like uh, casting a spell or something, but I don't know know if you disagree with me on this, but I almost feel like utilitarianism, which is essentially, you know, the morals of metrics, it feels so, to me at least, it feels like inherently totalitarian, right? Because again, you're talking about the global computer, right? Um, You know, the, the assumption that, you know, shoving more gigahertz into something or more memory somehow makes this thing, you know, better in a way i mean looking looking at your wonderful backdrop today you have all these you know nice analog books if we had this global computer okay yeah it can store everything you've got behind you how many billion times over right but what if you know what if uh what if you don't meet your uh you know productivity optimization this month do you get you know these things taken away from you by the by the uh utilitarian you know uh, witch doctors perhaps I don't know but yeah it feels to me like utilitarianism is a is a sort of tyranny um you make a really interesting connection which I definitely wouldn't have made if I didn't read this essay that you wrote which is between um academia and the way epidemiology sees it and uh Nietzsche's last man And I think that kind of ties into what we were talking about with um utilitarianism so would you mind talking a bit more
1: about that that connection perhaps uh, sure. It seems that, uh, you know, because of the temporary or the sorry, the contemporary schema in the university, uh, you know, to put it th- th- in the most uncharitable way, uh, you know, I think that we're taking the, the students that are like, you know, our best people in the society, you know, on paper whatever that means, and we are actively making them worse. Um, You know, we're basically subordinating the best part of these people to the most wicked. Um, You know, they come in, we, you know, they basically now have mortgage sized student loans on them, you know, a a great many number. Uh, I think it's the second largest form of consumer debt in the United States. Uh, You know, the sticker on this whole thing is huge. So we load them up uh, with the debt. Now, they absolutely have to, you know, go into avenues, uh, you know, where they're going to make that back. Uh, so you can kind of guess what that sort of trajectory is. Um, and in the meantime, the university system, you know, because of all the various intellectual movements uh, that we've seen, uh, whether we're talking about, you know, positivism, uh, these are all disparate movements that kind of came to, that just are part of the same overall trajectory. So positivism, physicalism, psychologism, uh, you know, sort of neo-pragmatism, um, post-structuralism and so on and so forth. They are, you know, at first blush, uh, quite disparate, but nevertheless are all part of the overall trajectory where we see uh, philosophy being... Institutionalized, uh, being instrumentalized, and also we see basically the attempted erasure of philosophy. And it is caused, this is the answer to your question, uh, I would say, is it, that it's caused the university system to become dominated by the, uh, the luster for capital, the allure of libidinal economy, and the culture industry. And, and since that's what, you know, if um, th- this is what uh, John Dewey called collateral learning, uh, you know, that's what these students are, are being exposed to. And as a consequence of that, what is being turned out, again, the, mo- the most uncharitable way to say it would be uh, that in some instances we're tor- turning out what amounts to infantilized borderline narcissists. And like a number of different social psychologists have argued that. Um, and so as a consequence, you know, these sort of uh, bourgeois consumers, uh, you know, committed to <laughs> basically something that appears like a, some form of nihilism, corporate nihilism, if you like, uh, are basically the equivalent of Nietzsche's last man, because, uh, you know, they're, they're not involved in uh, overcoming. Uh, these would be closer to cultural barbarians bourgeois philistines fashionable urbanites and so on and so forth and you know that's not consistent with uh you know nietzsche's sort of um aesthetic justification for life and you know his sort of drive towards overcoming yeah yeah it's
0: you know i think we've seen this progression in the west maybe over a a very short period of time but it's quite clear to me because of the fact that we're really you know, falling behind lots of other places in the world in terms of innovation. And again, I'm not making any normative statement here. I'm just, I'm just saying um, what I think these effects have had, you know, like innovation has fallen because, you know, the, again, like I, like you were saying on paper, whatever. Right. But, you know, people who are generally intelligent are saddled with this, this loan are not, you know, Given you know the tools to think uniquely, and and thus you know we end up in, with a with a system where you know we can't they can't take risks because they they've got debt, and they have to do you know they have to fit into you know the the mid the mid income cookie cutter mold right, and then you have another system, especially when it comes to these odd disciplines, which I don't think are completely invaluable, but a lot of people attend university to do things like media studies right where you're kind of you know you get to write a thesis on you know what you were watching the last 10 years anyway that's not like that's not learning that's like you said that's narcissism it's bizarre and it's uh, i think i think again like when it comes to the, the the money thing you know i think there's this idea of being on the ladder and i mean that in terms of like well OK, if you want to do something with your life, you've got to, you know, attend university, which implies these debts. And, you know, you're probably going to do something intellectually or, you know, semi-intellectually because lots of people go to university and don't spend a lot of time actually studying. Um, that turns you into narcissist, And that leads to things, at least in, the, in this country. I don't know about the US as, as much, but it turns, it turns into weird sort of, and this is definitely a, a kind of Marxian point, which is, turns into like weird fetishes like I understand the the point of for example owning a house or you know taking out a mortgage to own a house but you know it I understand things about equity and you know all this sort of stuff but there's a real fetishism in culture about a house a mortgage I, I, I don't quite understand it but I think I think we're making some interesting connections
1: here I don't know if you'd agree with me there Yeah, kind of in that same general direction is that, uh, you know, it it appears that um, you're talking about this mold, there's sort of a hyper real digital habitus that is sort of emerging, uh, where just for giggles here, if you look at sort of the educational theories of like Plato, and you know, I wouldn't say that I'm like a Platonist, Uh, I would actually critique him uh, at the end of the book that I'm trying to write. But nevertheless, there's a breakdown between theory and practice in the sense that, you know, at that point, they're talking about, hey, these people are going to be the auxiliaries. uh, You know, they need to be exposed to sort of the bleeding edge of our, you know, activities, uh, you know, in the polis. Same thing with Rousseau, who is talking about, uh, you know, attaining a rank that one cannot lose. Instead of that, you have a bunch of people learning, basically, you know, media studies, the art of digital sort of or symbolic representation. And so they live in a hyper real. It's possible that somebody could graduate, get a job and really not have much of a clue how anything works. But they nevertheless are, you know, hitting the button to order the fresh director or whatever the heck it is. And um, so the idea here is that there's a type of I'm trying to build a model of elite group ignorance um, that would apply to kind of the figure of the academic. And I don't mean that in sort of like a uh, uh, derogatory way. I'm just saying from like a point of uh, Hegelian like standpoint epistemology, um, you know, that um, basically with the breakdown in theory and practice, if like. Dostoevsky is right that, uh, you know, suffering is consciousness, you you now have the people who are suffering least, who are kind of like dictating the overall sort of trajectory of the entire civilization. And, you know, this is not consistent with good leadership. Uh, you know, it's not consistent with the common good. Uh, and I think it's something that's bad for basically those individuals, for the communities uh, that you know, that they and others live in, as well as uh, basically the whole world, Um, you know, as we continually sort of advance uh, this same sort of technical system. uh, And this is one reason that I'm so interested in the analysis of the university is because any issue that you may or may not have with society in general at this point in time is something that has probably been determined and shaped by credentialed graduates of like the world's top universities. Mm-hmm. This is certainly true in the US where, you know, if you look at members of Congress, um, you know, it's like something it has got to be over 90% of them, you know, are, you know, credentialed, at least have undergraduate degrees from these top universities. And so that's where their thinking is shaped. Uh, and, you know, that's, that's one reason that I think it's important. And, uh, there, there have been people who have looked at this, uh, quite systematically, but, uh, you know, I am trying to go, I'm trying to get all the way out there. Uh, you know, I'm trying to go full bore on this thing. So, uh, it's, I still have a substantially, um, uh, rough road ahead. Yeah. Uh, I think I'm going to try to write like three texts on this that are, uh, you know, like as rigorous as possible, but uh, it's not happening overnight. Yeah.
0: No, I I think you've definitely taken my kind of simplistic point and made a better one, which actually, you know, what this is doing and you say, maybe this is a normative takeaway for us is this, you know, it's not only bad for the people who are part of this, but it's also bad for the communities around them and the systems and communities they create afterwards it's not like we're not in pink floyd right it's not a mold that they get pressed into and now we're all um, wearing gray suits going to the office you know everyone becomes interesting right after university they become these fashionable urbanites right but they're all interesting in the same way yeah it's like you said it's hyper real it's not it's not like a
1: mold anymore it's not cookie cutter it's beyond that sort of thing And then there's this issue of, uh, you know, many people have talked about this, but the idea that kind of uh, there's almost like a form of bourgeois oblige where it's almost as if, uh, you know, kind of uh, the individuals, whether they're academics or, you know, You know, people that are part of this sort of digital class uh, kind of uh, have all of the rights traditionally associated with leadership, with almost none of the duties or responsibilities, which are deferred through the techno bureaucratic system. Because, you know, that is basically what the nature of bureaucracy is sort of deferral, deflection. Uh, and so on and so forth. So that is sort of another, uh, you know, it appears like leadership crisis. And you know, you can point to that in political figures in both parties. You know, whether there's some disaster in the area that they're supposed to, you know, uh, be, uh, you know, preserving the good of that area, and they're on vacation on some island. Uh, or you know they're implementing uh, what some people might think of as like various draconian measures, and then sort of uh, you know um, t- 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 hypocritically and uh, sanctimoniously sort of uh, going against it. At the many such cases, time. many uh, you such see? cases. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> so so you know so that is that suggests like a leadership crisis. I think it's strongly associated with. Uh, with academia and some of these other uh, issues, whether we're talking about replication or peer review rigging and citation, um, you know, I I think that the main thing that we see is the sort of um, the offering of credentials in the place of competence. And that that is, you know, they say that, uh, you know, there's a death of expertise, but there's experts all over the place. I think it's that people just don't trust them. Um, And whether or not they should, is actually, you know, that's a very interesting question. You know, what is the efficacy of this sort of expertise, particularly academic expertise? And so like when somebody like uh, Tetlock, uh, he did an analysis of this, you know, in terms of the cognitive styles. And he determined literally, even though like, you know, he then he kind of went in a different direction with it. He determined that, uh, you know, that a lot of these, um, the forecasts by these experts, uh, particularly the ones favored by media markets are no better than extrapolation algorithms or, uh, and this is the amazing one, uh, chimps throwing darts at a board. Um, And so since that's the case, Uh, You know, it comes down to now we're at the point of like the demarcation problem, you know, between science and pseudoscience, you know, kind of. um, And I personally, I would theorize that in many cases, sort of um, academic expertise is coming in a form of a sort of highly circular pseudoscience. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: And I think it's a real moral question as well, because
0: if you have expertise, right, we have kind of deontological structures that have come before, such as, you know, the Hippocratical Oath, where you're saying like, no matter what, or just for the sake of it, I'm gonna fulfill this duty. When it comes to the uh, media experts, especially, you know, the ones you said that could they can, would otherwise, you know, could be filled in by extrapolation anyway, or, you know, you know often make statements and then reverse them weeks, months, Sometimes you know days even later, um, it it sort of makes me feel like that is comes back to the question of narcissism, right? Because why would someone want to be the figurehead of an entire field
1: on all the news channels? Yeah, this it is quite something in his uh, in his study on that. Uh, I think it's called like expert political judgment, Uh, you know, he's saying that there's sort of this, um, this triad in between, uh, and it's quite toxic, really, in between authoritative sounding experts, um, you know, sort of uh, an attentive public, and, uh, you know, sort of uh, ratings conscious media. I think that's how we put it, uh, that they are sort of locked into this sort of triangulation uh, th- that tends to center, uh, you know, some of the some of the worst perspectives. Whereas the people that are much more careful, that use better cognitive styles, uh, you know, maybe less sort of ideologically, uh, you know, caught up in sort of like, uh, you know, um, a football style uh, political uh adventures are, are are just less likely to uh you know to be centered yeah and
0: this this essentially brings us back to capital again i think the words you use are ruthless neoliberal selection pressures which i think is a good way of putting it because those pressures do not um they don't favor you know they they don't favor they favor they don't favor the truth number one Number two, morally speaking, they don't favor um, deontological ethics. They favor a consequential version that is a kind of vulgar consequential, because it's that consequence where, you know, something's right if we, you know, if our profits are going up, if our viewing counts are going up. Right. And I think, you know, they're more they're more likely to put a sensational viewpoint to the front and publicize a sensational viewpoint, which, again, when it comes to narcissism, instantiates that person as kind of a figurehead of something and now you know we have to have to listen to them and you know by listening to them it's implied that we're listening to a field of study or we're listening to you know the umbrella study
1: science science empiricism but that's not that's not the truth that's not the truth and And then I I have I have something that I could tack on to that that I think is really interesting is that, uh, you know, let's say we uh, as it particularly as it relates to academia, let's say, uh, you know, we have this ivory tower syndrome, uh, you know, where we basically have these people under conditions where theory is, uh, you know, separated from practice, even though that distinction may not be theoretically sufficient, but, uh, nevertheless. Okay. So theory and practice. So I'll give you the, the quote that I like from, uh, Nicholas Nassim Taleb is he has this Yogi barism that he uses, where he basically says that, uh, in academia, there's no difference between academia and the real world, but in the real world, there is, um, which basically that kind of sums up what I'm trying to get at with this. But the idea here is, okay, so they already have the ivory tower syndrome. Now, you know, they have sort of this... uh, Academic appanage, you know, the idea of technocratic meritocracy, these degrees is like titles of nobility. Um, at the same time, they they have all the rights, but none of the duties or responsibilities that, you know, has historically come with these sorts of roles. And in the meantime, you have this issue of elite emulation. Um, where, for instance, let's say they're protesting something at Yale University. Now, some school that you never even heard of in your entire life will all of a sudden be in the news because they're protesting X, Y, Z. So this would be something along the lines of, uh, you know, like the costly signaling of luxury beliefs uh, or something in, in this avenue. And I think that when you take all of the above and you put that into one ball and you put that in motion, um, you're getting things that are sort of, um, you're getting ide- ideolo- ideologies that are very much disconnected from, you know, practical reality, and it leads to almost like a runaway avant-garde uh, is what I would describe it as. Uh, so, so it's almost like the more outlandish of a view uh, that you can actually defend Uh, you know perhaps the way the incentives are structured (laughs) so that uh, you know you're actually benefiting from this in some highly perverse way yeah yeah
0: and it's it's this this is something you definitely mentioned which is there's there's kind of a simulacra within uh, academia and this comes back to that brilliant point you said which was that you know reality and theory are the same in the academy but in reality they're not and that's you know obviously, a, maybe a bit of an epistemological, epistemological point, but I definitely think what you're saying, that the rights and responsibility, uh, the rights of, that are received by the academy and the responsibilities that they no longer have, I think it is possibly legitimized by some of the other studies of the academy and education as well, that talk about this sort of mythological educational past, right? this this idea of you know the i the, the ideal academy or the you know i'm going to avoid using the word excellent because that is wrong but and it's not even a historical
1: starting point for this is it I think it's part of the sales pitch. Um, and and so the, the way I've said it previously, uh, th- which is right in line with what you're talking about there, is the idea, like, let's say that you are a parent saddling up to uh, sign some checks uh, to send your child to university, uh, you know, they'll give you the whole pitch and, you know, they'll appeal to this historical lineage and these ideas, ah, yes, you know, the moral self-cultivation of, you know, of your, uh, your offspring, uh, you know, that we're going to make them into leaders or something like this. Um, And in reality, my personal view, uh, as as far as it relates to some figures, uh, perhaps like, let's say in the social, well, actually, you know what, In, in every avenue, whether it's social sciences, humanities, sciences, I think that some of them uh, are of the view, whether it is through physicalism, post-structuralism, you know, whatever you want, that basically, uh, you know, that they either have like an error theory of morality, they believe in some form of non-cognitivism or something like this. And uh, as a consequence of that, or that, you know, they think that it's socially constructed and they think that it is they who are the ones who are actually responsible for constructing that morality. So on that view, the figure of the academic, I've likened the academy kind of at this point in history, I believe, you know, it starts with Plato uh, in Hecademos, that's where you get academia from, Uh, but now basically it's become enveloped by Plato's cave. And uh, so therefore, there's like an unmasking of the figure of the academic, at least not all, but the ones who, um, who subscribe to this sort of distinctive viewpoint I'm trying to lay out here, where they believe that we create morality like literally Mm. Uh, those have taken on the role basically of these sorts of uh, shadow puppeteers in the cave, Mm. uh, you know, manipulating the shadows. Basically, this is uh, it's almost a type of charlatry, neo-shamanism, classical sophistry, uh, if you like. Yeah. And it's interesting. I, I don't know how committed you are to that analogy, but to me,
0: at least, it's not entirely clear who is watching the shadows in the cave? Is it the uh, students? Is it the academics? Right, because as you, as you
1: said, there's well, this I, the, the, way the way I have it personally. Yeah, I've been uh, I've been looking at Book Seven uh, of the Republic like in the past week. Um, I was revisiting it, and so I really think, hey, these these characters, uh, they've been in the cave their whole lives, right, shackled in there. Uh, the way I have it is that uh, basically, okay, compulsory sort of uh, mass education, A, uh, to, or at least for many people, B, uh, you know, you have these student loans where now it's basically there's a, uh, you know, there is a uh, bouquet of flowers. So for these sort of economic shackles, uh, so the students are trained, chained in there and then, uh, you know, maybe some of the professors are as well, but nevertheless, the, the sort of figure of the academic that I was outlining there, you know, the one who believes that they personally socially construct morality and that that is how it goes. Uh, you know, that there's no other sort of, uh, there, there's no other source to appeal to. Um, there are no, you know, no sort of external, uh, stance that can be taken. Um, that is an individual that I think are the, you know, the, the they're the ones, uh, carry they're the puppeteers yeah Mm -hmm. so something
0: that you uh bring up a couple times is the idea of uh presupposition in terms of what university is i've mentioned the kind of mythical you know educational past i'm just wondering what kind of like other interesting presuppositions you come across in terms of what people are assuming about this idea
1: So it's, it's amazing. Some of this stuff, Uh, you know, I said that I think that reality is like the biggest counterfactual to academic self understanding. But uh, this is the part where I would start harping about, uh, you know, basically, uh, you could, you could launch one of the critiques that they do of like, for instance, development right uh where you have individuals basically doing powerpoint presentations in oak panel boardrooms nibbling on charcuterie boards and sipping lattes but nevertheless uh you know will tell you that they're trying to save the world um yeah yeah this is the funniest
0: thing is like the only people who complain about gentrification are the people who moved in so
1: so, like, you have that. I think that the most t- 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 personally, like, the, the most outlandish thing that I've seen is uh, like the most, the, the, the sharpest rhetorical thing that I've seen is there's a text by a guy who was a provost uh, at, I think, like Columbia. And the name of the text, if you can believe this, I think this is really quite something, is called Towards a More Perfect University. <laughs> I mean, this is really uh, that's that's really saying something right. We've there. gone beyond excellence. We've gone
0: yeah. through the, we've gone through yeah. excellence and yeah. now we're we're in perfection but you know we can always make it more perfect right. It's yeah. it's amazing the, the the things that are generated
1: by this by this by this bureaucracy but yeah it's it's really is really bizarre. And on that one, there is a terrific book it's called The Fall of the Faculty um, I'm trying to see if I can remember the author's name Uh, I'm not sure where the heck I have this baby, but this is, this is a great book, uh, you know, as far as uh, how uh, the actual sort of professors have been overwhelmed by these like outsized bureaucracies. But uh, one of the antidotes he had is where he talks about um, some committee of administrators uh, held a sequence of meetings to figure out how to improve student experience. And they came up with 30 recommendations, which if you boiled those recommendations down, this committee of administrators determined that the best way to improve uh, student experience was to hire more administrators. Um, So that's cute. Um, So, you know, you you get stuff like that, so on and so forth. Uh, I'm very committed to taking this all the way to, you know, to the and so I would say, like, the most extreme thinker that I've found uh, so far. Uh, it's getting almost to the point where I'm going to have to start employing like safe words, particularly if I'm talking to somebody in academia. I was thinking that uh, no tenure would be a good one, but uh, so, like, Paul Virilio is somebody who literally wanted to create a hospital for science at this point. Uh, because he's basically doing a reading of uh, the fall of man in Genesis and saying that, like, if we continue on the current pathway that we're on, uh, you know, through techno science, through sort of like a, an irrationally structured university, this in the sense that it is seeking like knowledge inquiry instead of wisdom inquiry and leading to basically like an information bomb, we're going to end up being exiled like we're we're literally going to have to um evacuate the planet and like that's not a because there's like i think even hawking at one point was talking about exoplanets and so there's scientists who believe like oh yes you know we'll be safe once we get to our exoplanet so whether we're talking about climate disaster uh you know the potential for thermonuclear death and destruction or being exiled from the planet. Those are themes that are very much caught up with, you know, military industrial complex, um, you know, the like big pharma and sort of academia uh, little nexus there uh, and this whole assemblage uh, of issues.
0: Yeah. I'm just going to put my, uh, you know, uh, connecting the dots over a very, wide distance hat on now and just say that, you know, talk about the fall of man and Genesis.
1: I'm just going to point out that the biggest computer company in the world is called Apple. So. <laughs> and, and so, and then in the meantime, they want to implement planetary scale computation. Uh, to, who was the other person I was thinking of there that should run this out Bratton Pinker. And then uh, there's got to be at least one more figure that I put into the same sort of uh, you know, category that really, you uh, really exemplifies uh, the way I think things are headed. And I think that this is all basically uh, you know a product, like it follows directly from the Enlightenment, I would say. Also like you know, the transhumanist project, um, th- that as well, and that's tied up with sort of the scientific medical community and so on and so forth. But yeah, so Virilio, he wanted to put together a hospital uh, in order to deal with some of these issues. I think in, in many cases that, you know, hey, that's a pretty charitable um, suggestion. It's a you know pretty thoughtful suggestion, uh, a hospital for science. But I think in the U.S. in particular, that a lot of these universities have become akin to uh, racketeering influence, corrupt organizations. And that what basically mean by a hospital for science. I'm a bit confused by the meaning of that. Uh, so am I. But, you know, this is a <laughs> friend. This guy's French. You know, so like, you know, he, he was critiqued. In Do we the send the
0: scientists there? Do we send the the research papers there? What are we sending them? That
1: does raise the question of who will educate the educators that Marx <laughs> yeah. kind of put there. But yeah, Virilio, uh, you know, he is, um, um, what is it? He is French. So it's like he was criticized in the book, fashionable nonsense, you know, for some of his employment of scientific terminology or, you know, things along those lines. Aside from that, uh, you know, I, I think that he's uh, he's got some some of the most radical stuff that's out there, uh, particularly on administration of fear, information bomb. And then he's got a book called The University of Disaster, which is obviously why I was so attracted to it. Mm-hmm. But so, so thus far, I think that's like that's as extreme. That's about as hard as as it as exists out there. Mm-hmm. And I am trying to develop the extreme hardcore.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm really hoping this kind of builds up to a, a Luther moment where you're you're pinning <laughs> your essays to the doors of of great
1: institutions or like, I uh, okay that, with these inverted commas, by the way. This That was actually that was considered at a certain point in time. But, uh, <laughs> the uh, you know, it, it is what it is. We'll see what happens. Yeah. So maybe we could. Maybe it'll be an email
0: <laughs> right yeah yeah but then then with that you're leaning into the techno capital
1: part so yeah, i think that's true
0: return to tradition and start yeah. you know pinning things to doors again <laughs> i like it yeah so maybe we could just move on to something else that i'd really like um some more explanation on is uh, the idea of inverted platonism i hope i read you correctly where you say the universe system is a sort of Inverted Platonism, or actually, is inverted Platonism. Maybe you could just talk a bit more about that.
1: Sure. Uh, d- d- what's interesting is that uh, I- interesting is that Nietzsche, uh, I forget precisely where it might have been in his unpublished notebooks, explicitly stated that his personal philosophy was inverted Platonism. And you know the reason why is because he's trying to uh, use the aesthetic justification for life, and he's critiquing uh, Socrates. Platonism so on and so forth um so basically um Heidegger's course on Nietzsche what he says is that basically inverted Platonism is basically positivism and this is where sensuous being uh is truth uh you know the truth is the sensuous that's what he says that's what positivism entails uh so taking from that uh, you know largely speaking, I would say that the university is definitely committed to a a form of positivism, but even in the post-structuralist guises, you still have like the decertification of morality and so on and so forth, because like, you know, like reason and the good are no longer considered to be entangled or what have you. So as a consequence of all of this stuff, um, basically you have the platonic system you know, outlined in the Republic. So, Karl Popper in The Open Society and Its Enemies it's basically said that the Platonic system leads to fascism. That's what he says. And, you know, I think that there's some truth to that. Uh, you know, you see sort of an emphasis on uh, militarism uh, there, where it's saying, you know, like uh, they're talking about philosophy and abstract philosophy, the ideas how it applies to sort of like war fighting and so forth. Mm -hmm. So you do have that. You have censorship on that system, uh, you know, because they're excluding art. This is why people had to write a defense of poetry and so on and so forth. But in its, uh, so here's the question that I would want to pose without necessarily embracing Platonism as a political or educational project. The question would be, so if Platonism leads to fascism, you know, what happens to if we invert that exact same system, because that's what I believe that we've done. And I think it leads to a rationally totalitarian society headed towards open tyranny. Uh, and so, you know, I'm going to have to do more theorizing on that, but you can see the exact same structures as the platonic system, just basically um, where the auxiliaries or the guardians or auxiliaries of capital rather than a virtue. Uh, there's a division of labor by technocratic meritocracy. This is similar to the, um, you know, the platonic system. You have censorship that arises in the form of cancel culture. So that's consistent there. And then finally, there's also a noble lie which would be uh, the cult of education and perhaps even the idea that student loans will set you free in some sense. Yeah. So I think that it maps on almost perfectly. I think that an inverted platonic schema is the best way to characterize the academy. It's certainly not something that's consistent with Marxism. Uh, I I don't see it being, you know, even though um, in the sort of culture war cliches You'll see allegations of Marxism, and then you, you, whatever else you'll see. Uh, this is uh, this is inaccurate. Um, yeah, and so yeah. on and so forth.
0: Yeah, it seems it, you know listing out the things that we end up with when it comes to Platonism or inverted Platonism. There's a lot of similarities between you know the rational rational tyranny and the fascism, right? Because we've ended up with horseshoe, right? And you yeah. have to choose a direction. Either way, we end up with essentially the same thing. What
1: what would an alternative look like, and how would we get there? Yeah, so, uh, you know, as far as, like, you know, what's your alternative? (laughs) uh, You know, I haven't fully made it uh, to that point, but, you know, I do have some ideas which are, you know, one – that um, t- you know, it depends on whether or not you think that you know the tr- t- in the plate in the Platonic system they think that they can manifest the truth and that there is like a you know that it's like transcendent and that you can a- actually you know you can you can actualize that a- as a society in uh, inverted Platonism you think that it's imminent. But then the funny thing is that the university system acts as some sort of transcendental signified at that point. Uh, That's kind of how I think that people view it either as a transcendental signified or they view it as like some super parent from whom all blessings flow. Um, So you have those those positive feedback loops. Right. Yeah. So it would be I think that there's definitely a need for decentralized ethics uh, is one thing. Uh, You could have, uh, you know, the people that are going to be committed to, uh, to, to, we've seen the eradication of all high values. You see this a lot of times in art, where previously art would inspire somebody towards, let's say, you know, the heroic life, the intellectual life, the poetic life, the moral life. Basically, I see a lot of art that is consistent with the consumer life, and that's about it. Uh, It's You know, the people who are going to be committed to the intellectual life, they're going to do that, of course. But, uh, you you know, besides that, you know, I think that there's definitely going to be a need for courage as wise perseverance, you know, the way that it was classically theorized. So certainly courage, resistance, faith, hope, uh, you know, basically uh, trying to help others, uh things along these lines um this goes i know that some of your writings touch or at, at least i've heard you speak on this the idea of like quietism and you know whether or not it has any merits or not uh you know i think a, i think that there is a position that is sort of uh, removed reserved but then when you look at somebody like uh, socrates who by the way wasn't an academic it's one of my favorite points to make um Somebody like Socrates, his death is very sort of peculiar in that he both affirmed and denied the values of the city at the exact same time. He affirmed them because he agreed to basically, you know, he kind of sent himself to his death in a certain way. But in the meantime, um, he also did so as a consequence of like critiquing every single level of the entire society. Yeah. So it's kind of a, there's an interesting tension there. So now here's the question in terms of like quietism here. Uh, Well, he certainly wasn't quiet because he was, you know, he was yapping up a storm, obviously. Uh, But, you know, it wasn't like he was taking up arms at that juncture, Uh, but nevertheless, uh, his overall activities, if you believe he existed, which I do, uh, you know, because of like multiple attestation and and also the criteria of embarrassment is, uh, is the idea that, uh, you know, he may have exhibited a form of quietism that spoke very loudly uh, for about 2,500 something years No.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I'm working on a uh, a project right now, which is really heavy on Hume. And I don't know if this is a stretch, but I would say that Hume has a sort of quietism in a similar way, right? Where, you know, he's, you know, he's, he's digging into, you know, empiricism and talking about skepticism and, you know, really about, you know, what if, you know, there's no one to perceive the world and all these really quiet, I think anxiety driving things, because I mean, you know, if, you know, Socrates is debating with you and jumping all over the place, it's probably like, oh God, where do I even stand? You end up with this, um, I think you use the words axiological vacuum, which I really like as well. And it's, you know, it is actually quite anxiety inducing because philosophy is a lot larger than us as human beings. And yeah, so the parallel I would draw with Hume is he talks about how he deals with this sort of anxiety. He talks about how you know, when he's done thinking and writing for the day, he goes and plays backgammon with his friends because he takes his mind off of it. And I think, you know, quietism's got some legs in terms of, you know, we have our intellect, we have this ability to philosophize and argue one way or the other, but it doesn't, doesn't always compel us to take
1: up arms or just deny ourselves. And then, you know, there's uh, Hume. My favorite quote by Hume is where he says, there's nothing to be learned from a professor that can't be found in books. Uh, You know, what is it? uh, Now, at the same time, he and Rousseau, they didn't get along too well. Rousseau, for some reason, even though I totally disagree with him on certain things, is somebody who speaks to me in some respects, uh, uh, definitely uh, much, you know, uh, Nietzsche, even though I totally disagree with him. I don't know. I think it's a matter of temperament perhaps, uh, but I, I get a kick out of Rousseau. Uh, so the issue is that when, think about this, and like this is delving to, eventually I'm going to try to write about political theory. I think it's very related to all this stuff having to do with the university is the idea that when General Will was theorized, um, you know, General Will, popular consent, sovereignty of the people, we, the people, and so on and so forth, you're at a certain point in time where the the state of the technology is something that emphasizes number. You know, it's not like you have like heavy cavalry with like knights and stuff like that. That that ended up getting disrupted by like steel-tipped arrows, I guess. Now, you know, that becomes obsolete. But so at the time that general will and popular consent, uh, sovereignty of the people really come into their being, uh, 18th century, you're at a point in time where number really matters. Where it's like you know if uh, if you only have a couple guys with muskets and I have a couple hundred, you know we can we can basically overwhelm you. Uh, we could take over Versailles, uh, or you know we could back off the crown. Uh, you know in the in the U.S. and the colonials and so forth. But now the state of technics. when you think about drones and stuff like this, is at a point where it's like the the institutionalization of violence, uh, you know, which is what on my view is what we call political power, is something that is um it, it no longer requires uh sovereignty of the people. Uh I don't know what the date would be on this, uh, you know, where you would say, hey, we may be having a shift in sort of like world historical epochs uh you know but i i the the, argue, the case i would make is that like the volt the voltarian strain of the enlightenment is something that is like reaching its fulfillment right now as we speak and, and that the idea of like sovereignty of the of the people or general will as theorized by rousseau is something that is uh Going to become historically irrelevant, at least at the present moment, because of the technological apparatus.
0: Yeah, I would I would <laughs> warn you against putting a date on that, because you'll end up like uh like the climate people otherwise. <laughs> yeah. 20 years will go by and you've embarrassed yourself. <laughs> yeah. But um yeah, so you also talk about Foucault and Deleuze, which is really interesting. Um, but quite an obvious connection with Foucault, obviously, because Talks about you know societies of control specifically. What is the connection between Foucault? I mean, obviously we're talking
1: about you know this control structure, but how does that tie into Deleuze exactly? I, I could be mistaken because I'm not an expert on Deleuze or Foucault, but I think that, uh, that that may be where Deleuze took off from in developing the idea of the society of control, where he's thinking about, you know, these, uh, you know, these institutional apparatus, whether it is the prison, you know, the, uh, the factory, the school and so on and so forth. There's also another model that I like having to do um, I don't know if I can remember the gent's name, but uh, he was writing about asylums and he was talking about the idea of a total institution. And I think that the idea of the total institution is something that is uh, becoming increasingly relevant where it's like, you know, you have a uh, an ide- uh, an ideologically homogenous sort of site, uh, you know, that's almost like in, in some ways uh, secluded from aspects of the external world, uh, especially during something like COVID, uh, or maybe not, I don't know the, uh, I just think that that also is another interesting model. So, you know, with techniques, yeah. So I guess like Deleuze, think about a university under COVID where you could have people at home Zooming, Into class and stuff like this, but nevertheless, that doesn't change the fact that there is an ideological, uh, you know, structure, and, uh, you know, that they're actually being held accountable to that, let's say in their like social media activity or otherwise, and, you know, this whole thing is on the internet and the question would be where exactly is the internet. Um, so, or this is a kind of switching analogies, but it's like, um, somebody who is a digital worker working from home, who is now receiving sort of like bureaucratic emails, like in their bedroom, um, you know, from basically the, the people at work. Uh, I think some of them, uh, what I would speculate is that they're going to end up, uh, working more hours to the point where they almost become imprisoned in their own pots. Yeah. Um, You know, it's a seeming possibility here.
0: And it's sort of, well, you know, this is, this is so great because when it comes to the ideological stuff, this, this homogeneity is the reality behind the lie that the university tells itself that it's either, you know, The thing that's upstream from everything else, or the source of truth, or the source of knowledge, or you know, we're the three free thinkers, for example. And then when it comes to the, you know, the the COVID thing, at least with your example, is yeah, yeah, okay. The possibility is that there, we, you know, there's technically speaking, longer longer hours worked, or you know, you're expected to put more in than you would if you were there physically because you haven't got excuses like commuting and this sort of thing. But it also blurs the line between what work is and what you know free time whatever we want to call that pleasure or i think um it's not uh is it Schelling who calls it shuler i don't know but that's a interesting way of looking at it but um yeah these lines are blurred and the because it happened because of covid it's you know that you've got an excuse there for why this happened but now this now this system is in place and is self-reinforcing itself it doesn't seem like there's a possibility to remove it really at
1: least not completely yeah i think it's uh, it, like i've done digital uh, work here and there before and so the thing is that i am viewing it almost as a form of intellectual suicide Uh, And the reason why is because, you know, it's not like hard physical labor. Now, so that's, an up, but the drawback is you can do it for a longer period of time. You could do it for 12 hours a day. Perhaps, you know, the the market is calling for you to do it 12 hours a day. But a lot of times, um, you know, depending on what field you're in, it could be that basically, uh, you know, your mind now has to, you have to, dedicate all these cognitive resources to, you know, selling product or, you know, whatever symbolic sort of reproduction you're engaged in. Uh, And so I think that there's, uh, there's basically, uh, you have this digital leisure class and by leisure, I don't mean that they're not working. They're working almost more than anybody else in history. They're just not engaged in physical labor, uh, you know, and it's got its own, I don't know if there's much of a, you know, a sociology of this uh, quite yet, but, uh, you know, I think it definitely applies to the academic milieu. And, uh, you know, it's kind of, uh, it's part of one of these, you know, just another one of these vectors. Yeah, this is,
0: like I said, where we've got blurred lines here because it's early days for this sort of stuff. We're, we're currently a part of the process. But this, I mean, something you did pick out was um, a quote from Horkheimer and Adorno. And uh, that was, uh, amusement itself has become an ideal, taking the place of higher values. It eradicates from the masses by re- repeating them even more stereotype form than the advertising um, I- images paid for by private interests. What's really interesting about that is that the higher values are mentioned and you know, Hawkeye and Rodino are specific, like known for being a bit obfuscated in a way, but the higher values have sort of been replaced by, you know, this amusement culture or, you know, like you said, work culture. I'm not sure, where, where do you think that sort
1: of, sort of leaves us basically? The um, I noticed that it seems like uh, you talk about stuff like nihilism and uh, value. You know, I've seen some of your talks and essays and stuff. Right. Like this. Yeah. And I've I've been very interested in this. Uh, one idea would be the idea that um, t- t- from this one text I was reading, it was a critique of Nietzsche's transvaluation, and it's saying that you know the attempt to eradicate value in one dimension or sphere something that tends to lead to it popping up elsewhere. Um, So kind of I'm attacking my whole program um, kind of has a, uh, I think that I have a theory of truth where, okay, so like the the way that truth phenomenologically presents itself, according to uh, Heidegger is is unconcealment. I uh, I think that there could be a theoretical aspect here where we're talking about exteriority, and that's what actually facilitates the unconcealment because it's not currently part of our, you know, it's not within our grasp or within our kin at that juncture. Uh, so exteriority, perhaps uh, almost like subterranean in certain respects in the sense that it's always already there, uh, you know, for said unconcealment and uh, basically, uh I think that that is something interesting to the critique of the university because, you know, I think that there is truth there within the university, but I think that it might be underneath it somewhere. And uh, basically one may have to dig it out. The other thing is, um, you know, so I've changed my conception of what a philosopher is. So I can't presently call myself a philosopher because um, if the philosopher is the one who goes back into the cave, right? And I viewed the university as the cave. Mm. At present, until I actually go into the cave, and then try to turn people around, uh, you know, I haven't achieved the rank of philosopher. So I'll have to keep uh, rolling with that. Right. Yeah, I think, I think the reason why I am sort of tripping over myself there is, is because it's not
0: entirely clear what those higher values are. Like you said, there's underneath all of this and this is hopefully we're not falling into that mythological educational past or anything but underneath all of this maybe there is something that we can be retrieved but like you were saying this these sorts of things they pop up somewhere else and I don't think that's because you know if we <laughs> look at it you know in from an economic point of view that there's you know there's still demand for it that sort of thing it's just that values and the, you referenced some of my writing is that value is just dictated by how how we act we say a lot of things and that's you know explicit values but we actually coronate our philosophical values whether we like it or not through our action and I think those who sort of escape what might be you know what is essentially um, an academy of amusement sort of a weird sort of circus of fools to use a bit of Foucault language um we're almost sort of maybe we're not coronating any higher values but we're at least making attempt to sort of
1: unconceal them to use a word that you used yeah the uh it's kind of what I said I'll uh, cut right to the heart of the whole thing would be something like uh you know at the end of the day at this point of my project, which has been going for a couple of years, you know, I have published texts, but I have a whole tetralogy that, you know, is extensively outlined that, you know, I'm hoping to be able to bring into being. But I believe that the, you know, if we're trying to think about what the good life is, how we should live, um, you know, so on and so forth, basically, I just want to... Um, i want to convert people from the idea that basically uh that these this is an answer that can be provided by the state of contemporary academia and in many instances like if an academic if an academic not all but i'm saying substantially if they're looking at your face and telling you something to put it very bluntly you may be getting bullshitted
0: right and i guess at that point you probably you know You've done, you've done your noble duties as a philosopher. You've gone back into the cave at that point, right?
1: Well, what is it? Ideally, you know, uh, what my personal goal is, I don't know if this is achievable or not, but, you know, I would like to be paid, you know, a, a large sum to like go to Harvard. I'm sure you'd be very popular if you did that. Can I Can I achieve that? I don't know. Uh t- t- I don't t- you know, if I'm if I'm drawing from, you know, the best materials, you know what I'm saying? Like the best sources, mm. uh, I don't see how anyone could eject. Right, right. And I
0: suppose that's kind of maybe pulling out uh, a normative direction of your project because you're uh, use say there's a Deleuze quote which is uh there is no need for fear or hope, but only to look for new weapons which you use right at the end of one of uh, the essays i'm not sure what, what do you kind of make of that is that a good summary of kind of where you want to go for this is is you're not only looking for something new you're not trying to build something but you're also you're looking for weapons you're trying to attack you want to go back into harvard or yale and and tell them the ways in which this is you know crazy
1: well what is it uh, you know if i could uh convert a couple of people here and there from the you know from the academic dogma uh you know i think that i will have uh, done a good turn uh you know in terms of the weapons you know that's what's funny is so then on the other hand you'll get the quote um, you know, about the idea that you can't destroy the master's house with the master's tools and like, you know, what the meaning of that is. I think that that's actually wrapped up in a moral claim, uh, whereas, you know, obviously, you know, what men can make, man can mar. Uh, but in terms of the university, I think it's pretty clear what we are looking at. Which is that uh, we're going to get uh, what Scott Galloway talked about the cyborg universities, uh, you know, where you basically have like uh, the examples he gave. This is definitely going to be the case, I think, where it's like NYU Apple, where these corporations are going to come in and they're going to sap, you know, what's left of some of the brand equity of some of these places, which are basically dedicated to vocational training anyway. So it makes perfect sense. Um, And it'll be that leading towards globalacademia.edu, you know, which could potentially be, you know, next to the greatest tyranny. And, um, you know, from there depending on whether or not we have to evacuate the planet, it's hard to say, but to the extent that these universities are caught up in the overall technical system that is driving everything, whether it's like financialization, uh, you know, the climate crisis, uh, you know, basically weapons of mass destruction and so on and so forth. uh, The the idea that, you know, Basically, here's here's what it is: is they actually represent a real existential threat. You know, people say an existential threat, and they don't mean it. I mean it for real, like to the existence of the human species, uh, because of the transhumanist project. Particularly if you view that through like negative dialectics, like I do, uh, to or to the existence of you know human life. Period. Uh, You know, whether we end up finally, you know, hitting the button to Detonate the bomb called science, yeah. uh, you know, for the final time. Yeah. Um, to, 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 what precisely, you know, what does that mean? What are our responsibilities in that light? I haven't worked that out yet, but uh... but it's, it seems the that sort of uh, you know,
0: techno-capital extinction step. The first step for that was the kind of move to online interaction in like, you know, a test totally for a while. And then maybe, you know, some of, some of it's been given back, but maybe the realization will be, well, it's much cheaper not to have these physical things. And that applies to, you know, any business as well as the academy. Although we know now that the academy actually is a business. So this, this, applies, this applies kind of everywhere. And you can see this first step's already been done. I don't think it's gonna be a long time until especially financially struggling universities We'll just say, okay, we're just an online university
1: now. Yeah. I can Those see that are probably worth more yeah. as offices or whatever, sure. right? Then yeah, there's actually companies that specialize in that. I thought that was very interesting. Like, you know, there's like, uh, there's companies that specialize in basically turning over you un- like college and university properties for alternative use. Mm-hmm. Like that's literally what they specialize in, like educational, you know, whatever, uh, you know, uh, capital markets, the, um, The the only other point I would make about that, obviously, that's not going to be Harvard with an an endowment that's bigger than the GDP of some small countries. It's just that, uh, you know, kind of how that baby is invested is, uh, and this is like, this is what I think is key to sort of the moral status of our society. And, you know, what gives the really gives the lie to sort of these, like the, the moral myths of like these universities being involved in a, program of equity with a $40 billion endowment is the idea that those endowments are invested in corporations uh, because I mean, like for instance, Yale, um, they have uh, disclaimers of every sort of moral issue you could think of almost with the exception of one, which would be corporations that basically benefit from sweatshop labor. So, I mean, it's basically like, uh, you know, you're on campus, you're protesting Halloween costumes in one guise or another, but at the same time, these Halloween costumes are made by people on the other side of the world who have to like literally sell their lives for like mm-hmm. cents on the dollar. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm talking for like you know 40 years or something like that. They're living in a barracks, yeah. and, and in the meantime, you know, we have this uh, th- th- this sort of performance. Uh, you know, this, this posturing and posing yeah. as if, you know, ah, yes, you know, we're engaged in, you know, like that there's some high moral purpose to what we're doing. Yeah. And, and now here's the thing about it is so, so like, sometimes they'll teach, uh, you know, um uh Paulo Freire, they'll teach, you know, like the pedagogy of the oppressed. Well, if we were actually going to do the pedagogy of the oppressed, you would have to go to basically the Far East, to one of these sweatshops, because those are the people who are being like brutally economically dominated, you know, by, you know, and we're all complicit in this whole thing. And, And I think that basically this is something that probably operates very similar to like, let's say, like the 1830s, the 1840s in the U.S., where you have some of these abolitionists like William Lloyd Garrison um, and others, you know, who are speaking out against slavery. But that is nevertheless like the, you know, that is the fundamental basis of the entire, you know, a large part of the economy at that juncture. So it's like falling on deaf ears, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I just don't know how it is. Um, you know, that these characters, many of them, let's say like administrators or, you know, let's say college presidents can prance about sipping these caramel macchiato ventis and so forth, uh, you know, and, and and be making these utterances that they are uh, while this sort of thing is taking shape. It's like really freaking repugnant.
0: Yeah. On the, on the costume issue it's it's really is bizarre because, you know, the sort of person who should supposedly be offended by this costume is probably more offended by the conditions of their, you know, their existence than they are some Western person, you know, wearing a cheap version of whatever their culture is supposed to be in our eyes. Right. It's, it's really bizarre. And I, I really think that, you know, all this prancing and posturing, I think it's a very human thing because these people are captured by something that really is, beyond not only their, but probably our comprehension as humans. And all this posturing is like a very, it feels kind of, because it's definitely ideologically driven, so it's definitely tapping into um, the biological tribal circuits. And it almost feels like it's a comforter for the situation that if, you know, these things are looked at blankly academic realism, I think you call it, which is really good. You know, either, you know, exit is an option or, you know, just, just giving up completely. Right. It is really, really, really bizarre. So yeah, I don't know if you have any more thoughts on that point.
1: No, I, I thought the whole thing was great. Uh, you know, I really appreciated uh, many of your questions uh, hopefully, if I get more of this spun up, uh, you know, I can actually publish some of this stuff uh, in the near future. And I uh, said, uh, I'll definitely reach out. I'm going to be looking into your work because I think that there's, uh, you know, there's a lot of common threads there, whether we're talking about nihilism, uh, valuation, uh, you know, things like this. So, uh, you know, I really appreciated the conversation. Yeah. And uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah. No, it's been really, really great conversation. Academiology.com
0: for um, what Joshua's got up already. Um, You know, what you've got there is really great, but, you know, I'm hungry for more. Like you mentioned that you're working on some stuff at the moment. Are you you looking towards a long form project like a book or will we see more stuff on the
1: site? What are we going to see? Yeah, I'm I'm trying to do uh, like a whole tetralogy. So I'm trying to do like three short books, you know, these sort of like interventional sort of, uh, you know, glad you explained. I, I, I was going to ask you earlier what you meant by Tetralogy, because I didn't know the word. <laughs> uh, so, uh, basically like, you know, it's like four distinct works. And, you know, I think that uh, I even, uh, I even may have something in the realm of anti academic theory fiction which uh, I have invented, I guess. But um, so those, and then I might try to do a course at some point, uh, you know, in the near future. And that would be delving into these issues, like going all the way back to like Francis Bacon's, uh, what have you, and kind of how that leads, uh, you know, to the present schema. Yeah. And I mean, that's the great thing about your work
0: so far is that we've got a lot of threads here and, you know, we're going all the way back to Socrates and we're talking about the Enlightenment You've got, you've got Nietzsche and then the obvious connection with Foucault and Deleuze. I think it's got, you know, it's really got legs and yeah, really excited to see uh, where this goes. Um, Just before we wrap up, um, you know, I think some of these conversations, although I do think this is a serious conversation, do get a bit serious sometimes. So um, I've decided to finish these uh, conversations with, with a uh, sort of weird question, which is that uh, if you were on death row, what would your last meal be?
1: Uh, it's, uh, I guess it might be an opportunity for like a hunger strike. Uh, you know, I think it, I would get one of these charcuterie boards and then <laughs> yeah. one of these decadent lattes, And then I would throw it on the freaking ground in protest of the whole academic system. That's great. I, I like that you
0: assume that you're, you've been uh, going to be put to death by the <laughs> academic techno huh. capital singularity, which is, which is great to know. That's the mindset you're in. <laughs>
1: I hope not, but
0: what are you going to do? We'll see. We'll see. We'll keep fighting, right? Look for new weapons.
1: Yes, sir. Cool. All right. Thanks, Josh. Hey, cheers. Many thanks. I appreciate it. Big time.